We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 94 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Duran Payne episode. I had a lot of interesting options for this one. Preston Smith, Adam Carricker, Dana Stubblefield, Sean Gilbert, but I called episode 92 the Albert Hainsworth episode for the sake of irony. I can't honor two all-time worst Washington players over a three-episode stretch. So no on Dana Stubblefield. No on Sean Gilbert. Duran Payne, it is. It is Wednesday, June 30th, 2021, as my vacation week continues with vacation in quotation marks. Just three shows this week as opposed to the usual five. The number of shows in a week can never be zero because the news never stops. And looky, looky what we had on Tuesday, a major announcement from the Washington football team. Tanya Snyder, wife of Dan Snyder, now is co-CEO of the Washington football team. Do you think this changes, by the way, any of the tasks now in the Snyder household? Like, now that Tanya is co-CEO, does Danny now have to do some of Tanya's chores? Like, does Danny now do the laundry instead of Tanya? Is Danny going to be the one this Sunday, which is laundry day, at least in our house, to be carrying the laundry basket up the stairs? I'd love to see that, by the way. Danny carrying up the laundry basket. Anyway, there is so much to talk about with Tanya Snyder becoming co-CEO. Because, as you surely know by now, the news with the Washington football team is never as simple as just the headline. There is the headline... And then there is the actual meaning. And in this case, there is a ton that goes into the actual meaning. No show or podcast talks Washington football team like this one does. A full in-depth breakdown of Tanya Snyder being named co-CEO of the Washington football team coming up next segment. Now, because I'm only doing three shows this week as opposed to the usual five, each show is like a double dose, a double whammy. And so also on this show, more on the Washington football team. I want to get into a major piece by Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, a friend of the Al Galdi podcast. 
on Ryan Fitzpatrick. Monson gets it when it comes to Fitzmagic. We shall talk about it in just a bit. The Nationals, the boys, Davey Martinez's boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yes. Hello, Davey. Another win on Tuesday night, 4-3 the final over the Tampa Bay Rays at Nationals Park. Another homer by Kyle Schwarber on Tuesday night. The Nats now are a game above 500 for the first time since they were 1-0 and this season. Just incredible the run that the Nats are on. Of course, just incredible the run that Kyle Schwarber is on. My thoughts on the Nats are coming up. Special guest on the show, Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington on the latest in the Wizards head coaching search, a search that now is two weeks old, and that's okay. I'm fine with the Wizards taking their time. I know who I want, Wes Unseld Jr. I talked about that on Monday's installment of the podcast. I'll talk about all of the publicly known candidates with Chase. By the way, some news in the Wizards head coaching search. Late Tuesday night, the Wizards on Tuesday did interview Philadelphia 76ers assistant coach Sam Cassell. That according to Wizards insider Fred Katz of the Athletic DC. But wait till you hear what Chase has heard about the Wizards and Cassell. The Orioles, where the heck did this come from? Back-to-back wins at the mighty Houston Astros, and now a win away from a three-game sweep at the Astros. The Orioles' offense has erupted over the last two games, including a 13-3 win on Tuesday night. I will properly commemorate the tanking, rebuilding O's, putting the tanking and rebuilding aside for at least a few games with these recent performances. And I'll have some thoughts on the big Maryland basketball news this week. Daryl Morcell transferring to Marquette. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast, if you would like for the power of the pod to work for you, if you have a practice or a business that you are looking to grow, let your message be heard by thousands of people every day. Hit me up, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Devin. Uh, He writes, you mentioned on your podcast that you liked the Washington Warriors, the Washington Warhawks, and one other name that I can't remember. Uh, Yes, that name was the Washington Red Wolves. Continues, Devin. With the Golden State Warriors and the Atlanta Hawks both being professional teams that use the nicknames Warriors and Hawks, what about Warhawks? The nickname Hogs works well because it's a reference to the Redskins' famous offensive line. The only other team that I know that uses the nickname Hogs is Arkansas, but their actual name is the Razorbacks. Maybe there would not be as many trademark issues competing with a college for a nickname rather than a professional team. The only thing about the name Warhogs I don't like is it sounds very close to Warthog, which is not a great name. Uh, So here would be my issue with Warhogs or some version of Hogs. I've heard people suggest Red Hogs. My issue is that the name would reek a little too much uh, trying to recreate the past, right? I.e. the hogs of the 1980s and early 1990s. Now, this recreation of the past, 
I don't consider this to be a deal breaker. Like, I'm not adamantly against Warhogs as the next name, because you could also frame that name as simply honoring the greatest era and the history of the franchise. But I just remember Trent Williams trying to start Hogs 2.0. And with how comical that now looks, especially with what ended up happening with Trent, I would prefer to just let the past be the past. Washington needs to create new great memories, not try to live off of old ones. But again, I don't hate Warhogs. I probably could grow to like Warhogs. It's interesting to me how putting war at the beginning of a word or before any other word makes the word sound cooler. Warriors, Warhawks, Warhogs, War Daddy. Jay Gruden used to use that phrase, etc. You just attach war and it makes the thing sound cooler. But yeah, Hogs 2.0, we don't really look back upon that too fondly now, do we? Actually, these nicknames don't work out too often either in terms of nicknames for position groups. We had Capital Punishment a few years ago for Washington's defensive line. That isn't remembered all that fondly. Although Capital Punishment did start with the 2015 defensive line. Washington did win the NFC East in 2015. But how about the Flight Marshals? <laughs> Do you, do you remember the flight marshals? That was the nickname that the secondary gave itself 2017 and 2018 seasons. So, you know, DJ Swearinger and Monte Nicholson and Josh Norman. How'd that work out with the flight marshals? You know, Washington's defense was okay in 2017, but uh, things went bad in 2018 and went bad uh, quite deeply as that 2018 season went on. Well, a man who would fit in with Hogs 2.0, Capital Punishment, even the Flight Marshals, is John Grandland of Real Broker. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, or have been trying to sell your home and just aren't satisfied with how things are going, even if you're just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandlin, aka John G. And understand, whereas Ron Rivera has position flex, John Grandlin offers commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. You have position flex. John G has commission flex. What is commission flex? It's actually very simple. Not every home requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? There should be flexibility with the commission that you have to pay. This thing of everyone has to pay 6%, it doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. Let John Granlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right, for free. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. John Grandlin is a great guy, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan. He understands real estate in the DMV. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. Call John G at 703-537-6747. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you say that you want to hear more about what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, The Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703 703- 
537-6747 or visit John G sells for free.com. That's John G sells for free.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. All right, so this Friday, July 2nd, will mark the one-year anniversary of the thing that maybe changed things more than anything when it comes to the name saga for what is now known as the Washington football team. July 2nd, 2020, it was on that Thursday evening that really everything changed. As FedEx, for which the chairman, president, chief executive officer, and founder is Fred Smith, who was then a minority owner in the team, put out the following short but massive statement. Quote, we have communicated to the team in Washington our request that they change the team name, end quote. And nothing with this team has been the same since. The winds of change with this team have been blowing for almost a full year now, and the winds of change continued on Tuesday morning when we got a big announcement. The Washington football team announcing that Tanya Snyder has been named co-CEO of the team. Tanya, wife of Dan Snyder, the wifey of the Donnie, is now co-CEO. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny. It is a happy Thanksgiving for Tanya and you. There is a lot to sort through with this, so let us get to the sorting through. This is why, by the way, I did not want to take all of this week off, because you never know when major news will happen, especially with the Washington football team. And sure enough, we got major news on Tuesday morning. So let's begin with this. There very clearly is strategy is strategery behind Washington naming Tanya Snyder as co-CEO. Strategery. Yes, exactly. Strategery. And let me make clear that Tanya Snyder seems to have many good qualities. Tanya, since 2000, has led the Washington Football Charitable Foundation, which, yes, has been used to generate a lot of good publicity for the team, but which also, yes, has legitimately done a lot of good work. The foundation, per the press release from the team on Tuesday morning, has given back more than $29 million to the DMV community. I get it. That's from a press release. But $29 million isn't nothing. That's significant. The team does deserve credit for that. Tanya Snyder is a breast cancer survivor and has been very active in breast cancer awareness, including helping to introduce the Think Pink campaign to the NFL In 1999, every October when the NFL has got pink all over the place, Tanya Snyder is among those who played a major role in getting that Think Pink campaign going more than two decades ago. Tanya Snyder is someone who, unlike her husband, uh, comes off as being poised and polished in interviews. And that's not to say that not coming off poised and polished in interviews makes you a terrible person. But Tanya pretty clearly has public speaking qualities that the Donnie does not. Ergo, the happy Thanksgiving flub at the Ron Rivera introductory press conference two Januaries ago. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you, Danny. However, you are not paying attention if you don't think that there are some ulterior motives with Washington naming Tanya Snyder 
as co-CEO. First of all, Washington naming Tanya as co-CEO of the team comes, at least as best as we can tell, as the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the team's sexual harassment scandal is still going on. The investigation was confirmed via statement from Dan Snyder on July 17th of last year, one day after the initial article by the Washington Post on the sexual harassment scandal came out. The gist of the article was that 15 former female Washington employees said that they had been sexually harassed during their time with the team. The Washington Post last August 26th came out with a second major story on the sexual harassment scandal. The gist of that article was that 25 women told the Post that they experienced sexual harassment while working for the team. But there was a lot more to the report than just that, including the direct implication of Dan Snyder. So with all of this as a backdrop, you don't think that it's just a little convenient that Dan has named his wife Tanya as co-CEO? Strategery. Exactly. Strategery. Second of all, while the Beth Wilkinson investigation leading to, say, a lengthy suspension of Dan Snyder seems to lessen with each passing day, you can't just dismiss the possibility of the Donnie ultimately being suspended and maybe even being suspended for a while. Dan naming Tanya as co-CEO sets her up to potentially be the day-to-day owner of the team while Dan serves a suspension. It's still hard to see the NFL suspending Dan for, say, the upcoming season off having just allowed Dan to become even more powerful as an owner by buying out the three disgruntled minority owners. But I don't dismiss Dan being suspended for the upcoming season as a possibility. You can't, not with the findings of the investigation still having not been announced. So again, there is a strategery to Tanya being named co-CEO. Strategery. Yes, as much as some may like to put this up as, hey, what a wonderful thing that Dan has named his wife as co-CEO and one of the few women to ever be named as a CEO of an NFL team, there's a little more to it than just that. Second major point, Washington naming Tanya Snyder as co-CEO does come off signs of her involvement with the team having increased. The truth is that this announcement from the Washington football team on Tuesday morning wasn't shocking. Tanya has been out there more and has been mentioned more. Consider just the following. Last July 17th, we on that day had the reveal of an internal memo that had been sent to Washington employees in the wake of that first article by the Washington Post on the sexual harassment scandal. The memo was attributed to both Dan and Tanya Snyder. That stood out on that day, that that wasn't just something from the Donnie, that was something from the Donnie and his wife, Tanya. Uh, More recently, this past May 20th, remember that TMZ Sports video? TMZ Sports on May 20th published a video in which TMZ Sports, as you may recall, interviewed Dan Snyder while he and others toured stadiums in Los Angeles as the never-ending quest for Washington to find its next stadium continues. Well, among the others with whom Dan was touring stadiums was Tanya Snyder. So you had Dan out there, You had the team president, Jason Wright, out there, but you also had Dan's wife, Tanya Snyder. And then there was this, this past June 2nd, and this was subtle, but this to me was one of those little things that I think is representative of a bigger thing. Ron Rivera on June 2nd at a post-OTA practice press conference got asked about Washington the previous day 
having announced the hiring of Dr. Barbara Roberts as the team's first full-time director of wellness and clinical services. Remember her getting hired? We talked about that on the podcast. Well, Ron's answer included him saying, quote, I really do appreciate the Snyders seeing the importance of making sure that we are proactive with our players' mental health, end quote. Ron said the Snyders didn't say Dan, didn't say, as Ron likes to say, Mr. Snyder. Ron said the Snyders. Take a listen. I really do appreciate the, the Snyders seeing the importance of, of, of making sure that we are proactive with, with our players' mental health. Yeah, I really do appreciate the Snyders seeing the importance of making sure that we are proactive with our players' mental health. There's a reason that Ron said that. Ron knows how to play the game. And right now, playing the game involves acknowledging the power couple that is Dan and Tanya Snyder. Like the Underwoods on House of Cards. For those of you who watch House of Cards, or at least used to watch House of Cards, great show on Netflix, Dan and Tanya Snyder are Frank and Claire Underwood. Now, if you watch the show, you know how ugly things could get between Frank or Francis, as Claire called him, and Claire. By the way, maybe Tanya calls Dan Danny the way that Claire called Frank Francis. But anyway, a third major point with Washington naming Tanya Snyder as co-CEO. While you can very much argue that Tanya Snyder is worthy of being named co-CEO of the team, it is impossible to ignore how much Washington is touting itself for being woke, okay? Washington has become the Washington woke team as much as the Washington football team with how much Washington likes to pat itself on the back these days for being woke. So Washington naming Tanya as co-CEO is just the latest in a long line of progressive and historic hirings by Washington over the last 12 months. This is undeniable. Washington last July 21st announced the hiring of Julie Donaldson, as Senior Vice President of Media, she became the first female to be a regular on-air member of an NFL radio broadcast booth. Washington last August 17th hired Jason Wright as team president, making him the first black team president in NFL history. Washington this past January 26th officially named Jennifer King as assistant running backs coach. She became the first black female assistant position coach in NFL history. Now, none of this is to say that these people didn't deserve to be hired or were only hired because of their sex or race. However, if you follow the Washington football team on social media and or read and or listen to what the team says and or what is said about the team off these hirings, it is impossible not to see the team pumping out its chest as all of a sudden being a leader in the NFL when it comes to being progressive. In fact, listen to what was included in the press release announcing Tanya Snyder as Washington's co-CEO. Quote, Mrs. Snyder is one of the few female CEOs in NFL history furthering the Washington football team's commitment to being a standard bearer of diversity and inclusion in sports, end quote. I mean, how about that? (laughs) How about that humble brag? And remember, Washington touting itself for being woke is in line with the whole bots thing with Dan Snyder. Do you remember that? Do you remember the bots? Emerging this past March 5th was the appearance of Dan Snyder or someone or some entity working on behalf of the Donnie having potentially launched an undercover internet campaign 
to win him good publicity. Among the items were the bots. A number of new users appeared on Twitter, all female, all accounts created in October 2020, that were tweeting out praise of Dan Snyder. Now, for the record, Danny's attorney told Washington football team insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com, quote, Dan Snyder unequivocally denies ever using bots or fake accounts to put out favorable news stories. In fact, over the past year, thousands of bots have popped up in a coordinated campaign to spread misinformation about Dan and the Washington football team, all of which have been reported as such to various social media sites. And quote, whatever the case, the tweets were hysterical in that A, they all touted the diversity being perpetuated by the Washington football team, and B, they all tagged the official Twitter accounts for the Washington football team and the NFL. Isn't that convenient? Among the tweets, Anna Kresmer, do right, receive good karma, shout out to at Washington NFL and at NFL for working on diversity. Kyung Rodan, good old Kyung. I love how at Washington NFL is setting the example in the at NFL with cultural changes. <laughs> Marsha Pick, gotta love Marsh. Okay, at Washington NFL, be the change you want to see in the world. Diversity, I see you at NFL. Rosa Widowson in a tweet that came out about two hours after that last one from Marsha Pick. Okay, at Washington NFL, be the change you want to see in the world. Diversity, I see you at NFL. The exact same tweet, word for word. And then Rochelle Dowling in a tweet that came out the next morning. Guess how that read? Okay, at Washington NFL, be the change you want to see in the world. Diversity, I see you at NFL. Each tweet was worded exactly the same with exactly the same characters, including, by the way, three dots, a dot, 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 between diversity and I see you at NFL. These were all fake. This was all phony. These were bots. And I can keep going. I mean, these things are unbelievable. And Gao, let's show at NFL, at Washington NFL, some support for being willing to change. Reba Wiley, Somebody better tell at NFL, this is how you set the example. Real leadership at Washington NFL. India Edmondson. I got to give old India a call. I owe her a phone call. At real underscore Dan Snyder. So in this tweet, you have the official Twitter account for the Donnie. At real underscore Dan Snyder is really out here doing what needs to be done at Washington NFL at NFL. All of these tweets from all of these fake accounts singing the praises of Dan Snyder and the Washington football team for being diverse and also interestingly, always tagging the official Twitter accounts of the Washington football team and the NFL. Isn't that nice? Isn't that convenient? Isn't that a humdinger if you're the Donnie? First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes. Hi, Danny. So this idea of the Washington football team patting itself on the back for being more diverse, for being woke. That is in line with the whole bots thing of a few months ago. And it's hard to ignore that the Washington football team keeps doing this, telling anyone who will listen about how progressive all of a sudden the organization has become. And the organization, by the way, has become more progressive. It's not wrong to say 
that the Washington football team has become more progressive. But I always wonder about the motives when the thing that's becoming more progressive is telling anyone who will listen about that thing having become more progressive. One more thing, and I got a kick out of this on Tuesday. Tanya Snyder becoming Washington co-CEO was broken by the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal had the news first. And the Wall Street Journal, in its article, really did come off like a public relations arm of the Washington football team. I mean, the Washington football team pretty clearly planted this, pretty clearly gave this to the Wall Street Journal. And that's fine. Teams do that type of thing all the time for all kinds of reasons. But, you know, you very often in journalism, especially these days, see the following exchange. Objectivity for access. In other words, in order for me to get access to you, I sacrifice my objectivity when it comes to you. And you pretty clearly had that here with this Wall Street Journal article. Dan Snyder provided on-the-record quotes for the article, but the article included the following passage regarding Washington needing to change its culture. Quote, before all of that could change, Dan Snyder acknowledges that he had to change himself and become more deeply involved than in the past when he was often distant from the management of his franchise, end quote. I mean, how about that? Okay, the Wall Street Journal, the almighty Wall Street Journal, a very good newspaper for many years, doing the PR bidding of Dan Snyder with a passage like that. Before all of that could change, Dan Snyder acknowledges that he had to change himself and become more deeply involved than in the past when he was often distant from the management of his franchise. Oh, Danny, we need you to get more involved. Please be more involved. Please come save your team because your team is in need of saving and you're the one who can provide the saving. Now, look, that's not to say that there isn't some truth in that passage because there is, but there is a lot of nuance and context missing from that passage, including that Dan himself has been implicated in the sexual harassment scandal. And that doesn't mean that he's guilty, but this framing of the scandal as something that happened with Dan's team, but that Dan had zero to do with, I mean, come on, let's at the very least question that. Let's at the very least have some healthy skepticism toward that. So Tanya Snyder, your new Washington football team co-CEO, but the announcement not nearly as simple as that. One day in a land far away, we will have nothing but football to talk about with the Washington football team or whatever it's called. But we are not there yet, and we likely won't be there for quite some time. Well, a man who I know can always assess the politics, the palace intrigue of the Washington football team is Dr. George Verghese. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Moe's surgeon. He knows his stuff, especially when it comes to his craft. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. 
Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401. Or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So did you happen to see what one of the friends of the Al Galdi podcast, Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, just wrote? Sam already has been on the pod multiple times. He has been one of my favorite guests. The episodes in which he has appeared have been two of my most downloaded episodes. And we in each of his appearances have talked a lot about Ryan Fitzpatrick. Sam is a big Fitzpatrick fan. Sam really likes Washington having signed Fitzpatrick. And Sam is very much on board with my theory that I have talked about quite a bit this offseason, that the Washington football team has exploited a major market inefficiency in signing Fitzpatrick. In a time in which so many other NFL teams are giving up so much in the way of draft capital to trade up to take potential, not even definite, but potential franchise quarterbacks, Washington gave a one-year $10 million contract to a quarterback going into his age 39 season. I mean, you talk about zigging while everyone else is zagging. That's exactly what Washington has done this offseason. But doing this to me makes sense, makes a lot of sense. A, given how infrequently these trade-ups in NFL drafts to take quarterbacks in the top fives of drafts are truly working out. And B, given how well Fitzpatrick has played over the last few seasons. He has been sneaky good. As I've said many times, Fitzmagic, has been top 10 in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR each of the last two seasons. You cannot say that about many other quarterbacks. I would highly encourage you to listen to my conversations with Sam Monson if you haven't already. Those are on episodes 26 and 68 of the Al Galdi podcast. Anyway, Monson wrote a piece that came out on Monday, headline, an ode to Ryan Fitzpatrick, a masterclass in maximizing one's strengths while accepting the weaknesses, writes Monson about Fitzpatrick, quote, he doesn't have a particularly strong arm, isn't the most accurate passer in the world, lacks incredible athleticism, and has a tendency to make boneheaded mistakes. So how the hell is he still not just hanging around, but actually starting for a team that made the playoffs in 2020? Fitzpatrick's career has been a clinic in adaptation to maximize production despite all of those limitations, end quote. One of the points that Monson made to me about Fitzpatrick in our first conversation on this podcast, so our chat in episode 26, was that because Fitzpatrick's success has never been predicated on overwhelming physical traits, he is a quarterback who can age well and clearly is aging well. His three best seasons have been his last three seasons, his age 36, age 37, and age 38 seasons. Having a quarterback or any athlete who's a physical freak is great. The Washington football team in the 2021 NFL draft clearly tried to load up on physical freaks, but when your success is based largely on you being a physical freak, your success can be fleeting because no one is a physical freak forever. Fitzpatrick's success is based on intelligence, 
adaptability, and fearlessness. Now, his fearlessness can get him into trouble. Fitzpatrick's career turnover-worthy play rates per pro football focus is 4.1%. Turnover-worthy plays is a great thing that pro football focus tracks. PFF doesn't just go by a quarterback's actual turnovers, i.e. his actual interceptions and actual lost fumbles. PFF judges a quarterback by turnover-worthy plays. So a bad throw that a defensive back should catch for an interception but drops, that's a turnover-worthy play. A good throw that a receiver bobbles and then the ball goes to a defensive back for an interception, that's not a turnover-worthy play. Context matters. So Fitzpatrick's career turnover-worthy play rate per pro football focus is 4.1%. To put that into perspective, Carson Wentz's turnover rate for his disastrous 2020 regular season for the Philadelphia Eagles was 4.4%. So Fitzpatrick's career turnover rate is only marginally below the turnover rate of one of the worst seasons that you'll ever see a quarterback have. However, there's also this with Fitzpatrick. His fearlessness can change careers. Fitzpatrick over his two seasons with the Miami Dolphins, so 2019 and 2020, helped to transform Devontae Parker into one of the more productive receivers in the NFL. The Dolphins took Parker with the number 14 pick in the 2015 NFL Draft out of Louisville. Parker, over his first four NFL seasons, 2015 through 2018, was a decent receiver, but nothing special. But Parker in the 2019 regular season, which was Fitzpatrick's first season with the Dolphins, set career highs in receptions, receiving yards, yards per reception, receiving touchdowns, and targets. And his receiving touchdowns total of nine equaled his total for receiving touchdowns over his first four regular seasons combined. Parker in the 2020 regular season had the second most receptions, second most receiving yards, and second most targets in his career, and tied for his second most receiving touchdowns. Devontae Parker's career has exploded over the last two seasons. That lines up directly with the arrival of Ryan Fitzpatrick as a Miami Dolphins quarterback. As Monson wrote in this piece, quote, Parker's rate of open targets, as charted by PFF, actually declined as his production skyrocketed. He wasn't getting any more open than before. He was just working with a quarterback who didn't care as much. A quarterback leaning into the talent of his receivers can offset a lot of his own failings, end quote. That last line is a great line. A quarterback leaning into the talent of his receivers can offset a lot of his own failings. What might Ryan Fitzpatrick in the 2021 season mean for, say, Curtis Samuel? Samuel has been good, but not great in his career. Does he bust out this coming season due to Fitzpatrick being his quarterback the way that Devontae Parker has busted out the last two seasons? What might Ryan Fitzpatrick in the 2021 season mean for, say, Cam Sims, a big target, a talented but inconsistent receiver, right? He has to get better at not dropping balls. Does Cam put it all together this coming season due to Fitzpatrick? Heck, how much better might Terry McLaurin, who's already great, be this coming season with Fitzpatrick at quarterback? The lazy take on Ryan Fitzpatrick 
is that he is an old journeyman who throws a bunch of picks, never stays with a team for more than a few seasons, and has never made the playoffs. And if you want to subscribe to that line of thinking, knock yourself out. The accurate take, though, on Ryan Fitzpatrick is, yes, he is older, but also, yes, he has played the best football of his career over the last three seasons. Yes, he does throw picks, but also, yes, those picks are a function of a fearlessness that also leads to many big plays and guys busting out a la Devontae Parker over the last two seasons. And yes, technically, Fitzpatrick has never made the playoffs, but also, yes, he almost certainly would have made the playoffs last season had the Dolphins not benched him in favor of Tua Tungavailoa. Fitzpatrick's three highest graded regular seasons for pro football focus have been his last three regular seasons. 2018, an overall grade of 83.9. 2019, an overall grade of 76.5. 2020, an overall grade of 75.1. Fitzpatrick's overall regular season grade from 2018 through 2020 ranks number 15 among all qualified quarterbacks. That's not elite. That's not even very good, but that is decent. That's middle of the pack, which is a lot better than what Washington's overall quarterback play was last regular season. There are two things right now with Ryan Fitzpatrick and the Washington football team. Number one, this quarterback competition with Taylor Heineke that Ron Rivera is talking about with anyone who will listen. And number two, what Fitzpatrick is as a quarterback. Put the competition and Heineke to the side for a moment. What Fitzpatrick is as a quarterback right now, not eight years ago, but right now, is someone who provides a major upgrade at the position for the Washington football team. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, for the first time since the Nationals were 1-0 and this season, the Nats are a game above 500. It took a while, a long while, for the Nats to get back to this point, but the Nats are back at this point. Now, 39-38 and off a 4-3 win over the Tampa Bay Rays at Nationals Park on Tuesday night in Game 1 of a two-game series. And so, Davey Martinez, if you would please. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir, Davey. The Nats now have won 13 of 16. Still are three games behind the National League East leading New York Mets. They did win on Tuesday night, 4-3 at the Atlanta Braves. The Philadelphia Phillies beat the Miami Marlins 4-3 on Tuesday night. So the Nats, Mets, and Phillies all won by 4-3 scores 
on Tuesday night. Nats remain alone in second in the NLEs, two games ahead of the Phillies, two and a half games ahead of the Braves. And what you love maybe as much as anything about the Nats over these last few games, from a team perspective anyway, is that the home runs are happening and are happening in bunches. It's not just Kyle Schwarber right now. The Nats have won three straight. They, during this three-game winning streak, have totaled 10 homers. A Nationals offense that for so much of this season has been so impotent is all of a sudden hitting bombs like crazy. Nats hit five homers in the 8-4 win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Monday night in that makeup game. Nats in that game scoring three runs over the first two innings. The Nats hit three homers in this 4-3 win over the Rays at Nationals Park on Tuesday night, during which the Nats scored four runs over the first two innings and did then basically get shut down the rest of the game. But still, three home runs overall in the game. And yes, ain't nobody on the planet hitting homers right now like Kyle Schwarber. Another homer for him on Tuesday night. Another leadoff homer. Your starting left fielder at number one batter. Schwarber smashing a first pitch leadoff homer on a bomb off the facing of the third deck in right field off Ray starter Rich Hill in the Nats three run first. The homer going a projected 434 feet per stat cast. Schwarber also made two loud outs on fly balls to the center field warning track. It felt like he could have had three homers in the game on Tuesday night. And of course, nobody would have been surprised by that with the way that this guy is going. The leadoff homer by Schwarber, his seventh leadoff homer in a first inning this season. So he's now within two of the most first inning leadoff homers by a national in a season since the franchise came to D.C. Alfonso Soriano is number one with nine first inning leadoff homers in 2006. The homer for Schwarber on Tuesday night gives him 16 homers in 18 games. I mean, just think about that for a moment. 16 home runs in 18 games. That is absurd. Schwarber, during this 18-game stretch, has raised his slugging percentage for the season by 172 points from 404 to 576. And he just keeps going. We keep thinking that this is going to end. And of course, intellectually speaking, this will end. This is not going to go on forever, but it keeps continuing. And so let it ride, man. Just keep riding it. I mean, on Monday night, right, this 8-4 win over the Mets at Nationals Park, two homers to go with a single for Schwarber in that game as he abused the Mets starter, Jared Eikhoff, who, by the way, got designated for assignment by the Mets on Tuesday. Kyle Schwarber is hitting home runs right now at a rate that is getting people fired. The Mets again DFAing Jared Eikhoff on Tuesday. But Schwarber in that win on Monday night, leadoff homer to the third deck in right field in the bottom of the first. The homer going a projected 439 feet per stat cast. And then Schwarber, a leadoff homer to right field in the bottom of the fifth. That shot going a projected 409 feet per stat cast. But it wasn't just Schwarber hitting a home run on Tuesday night. Also homering was Juan Soto. Your starting right fielder and number three batter. His lack of homers, of course, such a big topic regarding the Nationals so far this season. But Soto, a two-run shot off Rich Hill on a line drive that just barely went over the right field wall in that Nationals three-run first inning. The homer going a projected 378 feet per stat cast. So this was not anything special in terms of distance, certainly not anything special in terms of the launch angle. It's almost a punchline 
because the thing with Soto this season has been that he hasn't had enough launch angle on his balls. He's hitting balls hard. He's just not elevating baseballs. And you can now say even on his home runs, Juan Soto is an elevating baseballs, but he elevated this enough to get the home run. It's Soto's first homer at Nationals Park this season. I mean, think about that. It took until this game on Tuesday night for Soto to finally hit a home run in a game at Nationals Park this season. And the homer is Soto's first homer period since a one-out two-run homer to dead center in the top of the first of a 9-7-11 inning Nats win at the Tampa Bay Rays on June 9th. So not since the last series in which the Nats faced the Rays had Soto homered until this game on Tuesday night. But good to see him do that. You know, Soto's process stats remain sound. He's hitting balls hard this season. Like I said, he's just not elevating baseballs nearly enough, but he elevated that one at least enough to get the home run on Tuesday night. And then the Nats' third homer of the game came from none other than Victor Robles, your starting center fielder and number eight batter, not your number nine batter. And Victor Robles finally homered this season. It took until game number 77 of the Nats' regular season for Victor Robles to homer this year, but he finally has done it. I guess you could say that's how bad Rich Hill was, at least in the early portion of the game on Tuesday night, that even Victor Robles homered off Hill in this game. But Robles, a first-pitch leadoff homer to left field off Rich Hill in the bottom of the second inning, the homer going a projected 399 feet per stat cast. This has been such an odd and peculiar thing this year, the lack of homers from Victor Robles. This is a guy who in the 2019 regular season hit 17 homers. We don't really know why he hasn't hit more homers this year. I mean, he's not having a very good year offensively, period. But still, it's not like he'd been a lights out batter in previous seasons, but we still had seen him hit some homers. Again, 17 in that 2019 regular season, zero this season until he finally got off the schneid with that shot off Hill on Tuesday night. And, you know, it's nice to see Robles just playing period right now. Remember, he suffered a right knee contusion on a leadoff hit by pitch in the top of the seventh and that 5-1 win at the Miami Marlins on Sunday afternoon. But he's fighting through this thing. I mean, he was in that game on Monday night, that 8-4 win over the Mets at Nationals Park. He came into the game in the top of the ninth for defensive purposes. He has at times over these last two games looked a little ginger on the knee. Like the knee, I think is still bothering him to at least some degree, but obviously he can play through it and he can obviously hit a home run with it as he did on Tuesday night. The homers have arrived for the Nats. You know, we are in the midst, of course, of summer in DC and balls are now flying at a Nationals park, which is starting to play like a bandbox here. I mean, you're seeing all kinds of shots. That Mike Zanino home run on Tuesday night. That ball that was in the air for like an hour and a half finally crashed off the left field foul pole. Balls are flying at Nationals Park right now. But you go back to that 8-4 win over the Mets at Nats Park on Monday night, right? Five homers in that game. I mentioned the two by Kyle Schwarber. Trey Turner smacked a first pitch solo homer to left field in the bottom of the first. Gerardo Parra blasted a leadoff homer off the right field foul pole, which by the way should be called the fair pole. Because when a ball hits the foul pole, the ball is fair. But anyway, uh, that par blast coming in the bottom of the second on Monday night. And then Ryan Zimmerman had a big home run on Monday night. A first pitch went out three-run shot to center field in the bottom of the eighth inning. Balls are flying out of Nationals Park. The Nats finally are hitting some home runs this season. That's not to say that the offense has been fixed. It's not even to say that the offense can be relied upon. Because on Tuesday night... The Nats scored four runs over the first two innings, and then that was hit the rest of the game. Nats actually largely got shut down 
the rest of the game. But the Nats at least are hitting some homers here lately, and that's usually a recipe for you scoring some runs. Now, the Nats starting pitcher on Tuesday night was Joe Ross. And Joe Ross ended up being good for a third time in four starts. Now, look, he's still Joe Ross. He's not someone who you can look at and say, okay, start in, start out. You know this guy's going to be great. But I tell you what, Joe Ross can be a good, effective starting pitcher. And we're seeing that here with what he's done. And again, three of his last four starts. So Ross in this 4-3 win over the Rays at Nationals Park on Tuesday night. Two runs in six into third innings. Seven strikeouts versus six hits and two walks on 88 pitches. The two runs that he gave up, he gave up a run in the top of the fifth on a two-out solo homer by the Maryland product, Brandon Lau, on a bomb to center field. That homer going a projected 400 feet for StatCast. And then Ross giving up a run in the top of the sixth on a one-out double by Austin Meadows and a two-out double by Kevin Kiermeyer on a one-two pitch. But other than that, Ross was very effective on Tuesday night, and the Rays are a good team. So you do a good job against the Rays, that's a good job, period. This isn't, you know, excelling against the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Miami Marlins here. The Rays are one of the best teams, one of the best organizations in Major League Baseball. Ross, in a perfect top of the second, had strikeouts of Mike Zanino and Brett Phillips. Ross, in a perfect top of the fourth, had strikeouts of Kevin Kiermeyer and Mike Zanino. Ross exited this outing with 29 strikeouts versus four walks over his last four starts. That's something that really stands out. Joe Ross is striking out more batters here lately. You know, we've seen that with Eric Fetty this year in terms of, well, why has Eric Fetty been so much better this season as compared to other seasons? And one of the big reasons has been Fetty's generating more strikeouts. Well, Ross, at least lately, is generating more strikeouts. Again, 29 strikeouts versus just four walks over his last four starts. His velocity was really good on Tuesday night, too. He was clocking his four-seam fastball and like the mid-90s, and he's on a bit of a roll here. You know, Ross in his previous outing, 7-3 win at the Miami Marlins last Thursday night. Terrific. Seven scoreless innings, eight strikeouts versus four hits and two walks. Now, Ross was coming off a shaky outing prior to that most recent one going into Tuesday night, that uh, 5-1-7 inning loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park on June 19th in game one of a doubleheader. Ross in that game, five runs in five innings. But even in that game, he had five strikeouts versus no walks. He threw 50 of his 67 pitches for strikes. And Ross, before that game, the 5 nothing win over the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park on June 13th, had the best outing of his major league career. Eight scoreless innings, nine strikeouts versus five hits and no walks. And the other thing with Ross right now, too, is he's giving you length. Eight scoreless innings in that win over the Giants. Seven scoreless innings in that win at the Marlins. Six and a third innings in this game on Tuesday night. And right now, the Nationals need all of the length that the Nats can get from starting pitchers because the Nats bullpen is severely undermanned in terms of the guys who are supposed to be in that bullpen. The pen is operating on fumes as well. But, and you've got to give the bullpen credit for this, the pen is finding ways to get the job done. I mean, I mentioned it. The Nats have won 10 of their last 13. The bullpen is a part of that, even though the bullpen has a bunch of people who most Nats fans have probably never heard of here. So the Nats on Tuesday announced a flurry of roster moves for the bullpen. Principal among those moves, the Nats putting Tanner Rainey on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to June 28th with a stress reaction in his right tibia. So Tanner Rainey joins Daniel Hudson Kyle Finnegan, 
and Will Harris, don't forget about him, as key Nats relievers on the 10-day IL right now. I mean, those four guys were supposed to be four key guys for the Nats bullpen this season. All four now are on the 10-day IL, Rainey, Hudson, Finnegan, and Harris. The Nats on Tuesday also designated Justin Miller for assignment. Boy, he'd been bad for the Nats. Miller in that 8-4 win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Monday night, giving up back-to-back home runs. A first-pitch two-run homer to Pete Alonso, followed by a homer by Billy McKinney, despite him having been down in the count of 1.12. The Nats on Tuesday recalled Ryan Harper from AAA Rochester. And the Nats on Tuesday selected the contract of lefty Kyle Lobstein, from AAA Rochester. Yes, the Nats now have someone in their bullpen named Kyle Lobstein to give you a sense of what's going on here with the bullpen right now. In fact, the Nationals bullpen right now includes Kyle Lobstein, Andres Machado, and Jeffrey Rodriguez. Who? What? Exactly. The Nationals bullpen is severely undermanned in terms of the guys who are supposed to be in that bullpen, but the bullpen keeps delivering, and the bullpen delivered on Tuesday night in this 4-3 win over the Rays at Nationals Park. Three Nats relievers combined to allow one run in two and two-thirds innings. Sam Clay entered the game in the top of the seventh with a runner on first and one out and retired two consecutive batters off giving up a single to the first batter he faced. Austin Voth tossed a perfect top of the eighth. And then Brad Hand pitching for a third consecutive day. He did allow a run in the top of the ninth. He gave up that aforementioned home run to Mike Zanino. It was a leadoff homer off the left field foul pole on a ball that, again, stayed in the air for like forever. But then Hand was able to work his way through the rest of that top of the ninth inning. And Hand, who is got to be feeling it right now. I mean, again, he pitched for a third consecutive day. He tossed one and two thirds perfect innings for a great five out save the previous night, that 8-4 win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Monday night. So Hand pitching for a third straight day, pitching off the previous day, having recorded a five-out save, is called upon and he delivers. I mean, yes, he gives up the homer to Zanino, but ultimately Brad Hand came through for the Nets on Tuesday night. Great job by him. Great job by this bullpen. I don't know if this can continue. I mean, this is a really rough patch that the Nats are in right now with all these key relievers on the 10-day IL. Brad Hand being overworked and the Nats not having an off day until the All-Star break. The Nats, because they had that makeup game against the Mets on Monday, are going through a brutal stretch here in which the Nats haven't had an off day since Monday, June 21st. So unless one of these games gets rained out, The Nats will not have an off day until the All-Star break, which begins on Monday, July 12th. The Nats have this Game 2 against the Rays on Wednesday, then a four-game series against the Los Angeles Dodgers, then a trip out west, four-game series at the San Diego Padres, followed by a three-game series at the San Francisco Giants. Well, with this Game 2 against the Rays at Nationals Park, the game is Wednesday afternoon at 4.05. John Lester versus Michael Waka is the pitching matchup. Waka has a 466 ERA over 48 into third innings this season, 13 games, including nine starts. So this is another pitcher against whom Kyle Schwarber should be able to hit at least one more Schwarbomb, if not two or three. Lester, though, is coming off a wretched outing. The 11-2 loss at the Miami Marlins on Friday night. Lester was a complete disaster in that game. There's no other way to say it. He allowed seven runs in two into third innings. He gave up five hits, a homer, two doubles, and three singles. He issued three walks. He threw just 35 strikes versus 29 balls on 64 pitches. 
John Lester now, over 11 starts this season, has an ERA of 499 and a whip of 153. Now, it's not like he's been a complete mess in all of his starts. He was actually coming off a very good outing, that 6-2-7 inning win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on June 19th in Game 2 of a doubleheader. Lester in that game, two runs in six innings, six strikeouts versus no walks. Now, he did give up seven hits, but he looked good in that game. He actually tossed six scoreless innings before giving up the two runs to begin the top of the seventh inning. But the guy throughout the year has put a bunch of people on base. Again, the whip is 153, and it's very easy for a guy like this who doesn't throw hard to get got. And Lester sure got got at the lowly Marlins last Friday night. And that's the thing. The Marlins are a bad offensive team. And even they were able to tattoo Lester to the tune again of seven runs in two and a third innings. And I mentioned this upcoming four-game set against the Dodgers at Nationals Park. We do believe that the pitching matchup for game three of this series will be my guy, Paolo Espino versus Clayton Kershaw. I mean, how about that? Espino versus Kershaw. And this game three, understand, this is a Saturday night Fox game. Espino versus Kershaw, Nats Dodgers game three, will be Saturday night at 7.15 in a game on Fox. The bright lights, the primetime eyes will be on our guy, Paolo, who was so good in that 8-4 win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Monday night. That was, of course, a makeup game. Espino was called upon to make the spot start with Eric Fetty now on the 10-day injured list. And Espino delivered and then some five scoreless innings. He had three strikeouts versus five hits, all of which were singles. He issued no walks. He did what he always does. He worked quickly. He threw strikes. He worked effectively. Paolo Espino threw 45 strikes versus just 22 balls on 67 pitches. You know, we joke about Espino. We have fun with Espino, the name, the background, you know, the lack of an intimidating look, etc. This guy has been so good for the Nationals this year. He now has an ERA of 202 and a whip of 0.87 in 35 and two-thirds innings over 18 games, including three starts. So I'm excited for my guy, Paolo, against the great Kershaw Saturday night at Nationals Park. And then also regarding this upcoming Dodgers series, and we'll see where this next item ends up going. But the Dodgers expected starter for game four, which is the game on Sunday morning, July 4th at 11.05, is Trevor Bauer. Uh, That might be about to change. We'll see here. We on Tuesday evening learned that Bauer is under investigation for assault as a woman claims that he got physical with her earlier this year. Now, Bauer's attorney put out a statement saying that all that ever happened between Bauer and the woman were two encounters of consensual rough sex that the woman asked for, including requests to be choked out and slapped in the face. Uh, We here on the Al Galdi podcast do not judge, okay? So if you're into that sort of thing, more power to you. But of course, you need to be into that sort of thing in order for that sort of thing to be kosher. And uh, we don't know if, in fact, this was, in fact, a consensual situation or not. So we shall see. But given the current climate, I would not be stunned if Trevor Bauer ends up not starting against the Nationals on Sunday morning. And boy, would that be a big break if the Nats can face the Dodgers and avoid having to face Trevor Bauer. 
So it was on June 16th that the Wizards announced that they had parted ways with head coach Scott Brooks. Here we are now on Wednesday, June 30th, and the Wizards still do not have a head coach. They are taking their time, with which, by the way, I am fine. But where are we in the head coaching search, and where is it going to lead? Very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast, a man who has been all over the Wizards head coaching search, Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington. Chase, my friend, it's good to talk to you, man. How are you? Good to be on with you again. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming on. So that the Wizards head coaching search is taking a while. Is any of that about the Wizards perhaps waiting on any assistant coaches on teams in the conference finals, or is this just more about the Wizards taking their time? I think it's more the latter. I mean, this has been kind of their M.O. as a franchise for a long time. I mean, Ted Leonsis, um, though it's a search being led by Tommy Shepard, uh, Ted Leonsis on down is just a, a very sort of deliberate process, everything they do. I mean, look at how long they took to settle on Tommy Shepard in 2019. I don't mean settle in that they settled in, in a bad way. It just took them months to, to figure out that he was their guy after interviewing a ton of people, um, as was detailed in the Washington Post, I think over 100 people. So this is just kind of how they do things. And Tommy Shepard, you know, he said this at the onset of the search that it would take a while. They would take their time. He even said that he thinks that patience can be a competitive advantage. So they're going to take, uh, I would imagine another few weeks here. And really, I think the deadline they see is when free agency begins August 2nd, just so that they can have a head coach in place so that players, prospective players know what they're signing up for. You have reported that the Wizards are focusing their head coaching search on NBA assistant coaches and that it's looking more and more like the Wizards are going to hire a first-time NBA head coach for the first time in decades. What do you make of those two items, focusing on assistants and also going with someone who has not previously been an NBA head coach? Well, I think it's interesting for two reasons. One is that they had sort of a, a pretty tough decision to make when it comes to their competitive timeline and trying to match up a head coach with that. And the reason I say that is because Brad Beal essentially has one year left on his contract. He could sign an extension this summer, but right now he's only got one year until he can opt out of the second year that's left on his deal. Russell Westbrook's 32 going on 33. Um, so you have this sort of short window where you have to make it work quickly And if you don't, then you're probably staring down the prospect of a potential rebuild. So it's like, do you want to bring in someone without experience who, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a risk that they can hit the ground running? Or do you want to bring in someone with experience? You got to give a lot of money and a lot of years in the contract and maybe three years from now they wouldn't match your roster. So it seems like they've decided that they want to go with a first time head coach right now. That's the way it appears. Um, And that's also interesting. The second reason is because, as you alluded to, it's something that the franchise hasn't tried in a long time. It dawned on me the other day. I was thinking, like, when's the last time they hired a first-time head coach? And now, technically, in 2008, they had Ed Tapscott, who'd never been a head NBA head coach before. They they bumped him up as an interim head coach uh, to replace, uh, I, I guess it was Eddie Jordan at the time, who was fired midseason. But they haven't gone out in a process like this and hired a first-time NBA head coach since 2000, when Michael Jordan hired Leonard Hamilton who now is, of course, since uh, gone on to have a lot of success at Florida State. So it's something they haven't tried before, and I think there's merit just in them trying something new because this is a franchise that, let's be honest, hasn't had much playoff success since the 70s. They haven't been to the conference finals. So I think just trying something you haven't tried before after trying the same thing over and over and over, I I think there's something to that. I want to get into some of these candidates. A lot of names out there. Would you say that it's safe to say 
that Wes Unsell Jr. is the leading candidate or not necessarily? I, I would say that. I think he's the favorite at this point, and that's without much information tying the two sides together in this process. I mean, we know that the Wizards are interested. That was reported by the Denver Post. I heard similarly, but we don't know of an interview yet or anything like that. Um, but there's just a lot of dots to connect there. Uh, obviously, the name, the local connection, he's the son of the most decorated player in franchise history. But you could take that out of the equation, and he would still have – a lot of reasons to be a great candidate for this position. He was an assistant here from 2005 to 2011. Uh, Tommy Shepard was in the front office back then, so he knows Tommy Shepard. He's the associate head coach, so the number two guy in Denver, a really, really good team. Um, he's He's got a great reputation around the league, uh, particularly for his defensive uh, scheme. So I, I think he makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's just a lot of reasons that you can add them all up and, and tie him to the Wizards job. Now, sometimes, of course, the the most obvious candidate isn't the one, um, but looking at the nature of their search and all the connections you can draw, um, I think he remains the favorite to this point. Yeah, I mean, I know for me, I want the Wizards' next head coach to be someone who can get the team to play at a high level defensively. And knowing what we know about West, that he's been essentially like the Nuggets' defensive coordinator and that the Nuggets have been a good, if not really good, defensive team over these last few years, that's really encouraging to me. I, I would love to see someone like that come here and be the Wizards' next head coach. You also have reported that Sam Cassell's name isn't coming up as much as some might expect. And I talked about this on Monday's installment of the podcast. It's funny to me how certain so many are that Cassell is going to be like the next Greg Popovich. And I get that there's a lot to like about Sam Cassell, but man, like so many fans are so sure that this guy will be so great uh, as a head coach. And then you report that his name actually isn't really coming up that much. Why isn't Cassell's name coming up more for the Wizards' job? Yeah. Well, it's always funny in situations like this when there's an assistant, a front office, or a coach. We really don't know at the end of the day, right, like what their value is. People in the building really know more than anyone, people around the league. And I think Sam Cassell could be a good head coach someday. I just don't know if the, the right fit is here. You know, I've interacted with him before. He's a very smart guy, a lot of energy, um, likable guy. Uh, players love him. You know, he was here early in his assistant career and early in Bradley Beal's career, Bradley Beal's a big fan of his. But Bradley Beal, and, and Bradley Beal has power within the organization, but Bradley Beal has not shown a tendency in the past to be the type of guy to put an ultimatum out there, kind of like we saw with um, Damian Lillard just a few weeks ago when they're, when the Blazers search began. Um, I, I don't think Bradley Beal is that point in his career where he wants to do something like that, maybe if he spoke up. Um, but Sam Cassell, I, I think um, – the Wizards know him and Wes Unsell, just to make the comparison, because those are the former assistants with the Wizards who have recognizable names. They they saw those guys earlier in their assistant career, and I think the Wizards just see Wes Unsell maybe at this point as a better fit for them than, than Sam Cassell. I think Cassell will get um, a job uh, someday, but you know sometimes, I guess if, if I had a theory, I, I haven't heard you know definitive specifics as to why maybe he isn't as serious as a candidate as other people think. Um, you know, he's got this great uh, sort of energetic personality that, that players love, but sometimes um, that isn't the right type of person to be a head coach for a certain team at a certain time. And, you know, I was on the, the radio the, the other day and um, the, the host made a really good point that I, I think makes sense, which is, uh, you know, after Scott Brooks, who was a player's coach, that um, it's, it's kind of like sometimes you want to go in the opposite direction. And I haven't really heard this about the Wizards, that they want someone who will run a tighter ship. But if you do want to change the, the culture and the nature of that locker room, maybe that's something that you would do. Uh, kind of like when the Washington football team went from Jay Gruden to Ron Rivera. 
Is Wes Unseld Jr. perceived as someone who, as an NBA head coach, would run a tighter ship than, say, a Sam Cassell would? You know, I, I don't know enough to say that, but he does strike me as a, a pretty serious guy. Um, you know, Sam Cassell um, is a hilarious uh, guy. He's very funny. Um, I, I, in the West Unsell, just to interview, seems like he's a, he's very, very mature, very, very serious, and maybe that's something that um, would impress the Wizards, uh, especially coming from a guy at, at his age who's looking for his first uh, gig as a head coach. Um, I don't think they want someone who will come in and run, you know, some sort of real, real tight ship uh, uh, like Ron Rivera is, is doing with the Washington football team. But certainly discipline on the court is going to be a priority, particularly on the defensive end. We're talking Wizards head coaching search with Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington. Two other names that have come up, Boston Celtics assistant coach Scott Morrison, who we know the Wizards did interview. Uh, Morrison has admitted to that. And Dallas Mavericks assistant coach, Jamal Mosley. What are your thoughts on those guys? Well, Mosley uh, has a great reputation around the league. He, you know, uh, he was a, a pretty respected assistant for the Dallas Mavericks. So I, I, it wasn't surprising to me that they were interested in him. And, you know, now he's looking for a job as an assistant coach, too. So maybe they can get to know him that way. And if they don't hire him as a head coach, uh, maybe they could bring him in on their assistant staff. Uh, Morrison, what stood out to me is the international experience. He's from Canada and was an assistant for the Canadian national team. And also he was a head coach of uh, a G League team for the Boston Celtics, the main Red Claws. And I think those are the type of things, like when you're looking at a pool of uh, assistants that would be first-time head coaches, those are things that could separate some from others in terms of their experience. All that stuff is going to factor in if you're not going up against someone who's actually been an NBA head coach. And early on in the process, you know, I reported that the Wizards were going to value international experience. Um, an international head coach, a guy from another country, um, you know, that isn't Canada, that's pretty rare. So maybe it would come in the form of someone who's either been an assistant or a head coach for a national team um, somewhere around the world or in the Euro League or something, uh, one of the other top leagues in the world. Uh, don't be surprised if, if more candidates come out with that type of experience. When it comes to the Wizards not retaining Scott Brooks, as head coach. We initially had the reports that the Wizards and Brooks could not agree on a deal. We then, though, had Tommy Shepard saying that the decision not to retain Brooks was Tommy's call and that Tommy had decided not to bring Brooks back as head coach. Do you know what the truth is? Did the Wizards want Brooks back and the two sides just couldn't arrive at a deal? Or did Shepard legitimately decide he no longer wanted Brooks as Wizards head coach? You know, that's a good question. I mean, from what I hear that, you know, there were contract negotiations, but it it, it, it kind of became an offer where he was going to have to take a pretty big pay cut. And, and that's, it, I think the writing was kind of on the wall. I mean, once I heard that, you know, it's, it's tough to kind of put yourself in the shoes of people who are making millions of dollars coaching a basketball team. But certainly when there's an offer that's pretty below their, their yearly salary, um, you know, you can kind of sense what the Wizards' intentions were. And I think they they saw a, a, in Scott Brooks a guy who did a good job this year, um, but someone who you know maybe it, it at times could have done a better job when they when they went through their injuries. It was kind of like when the team was healthy they were good, and when they weren't healthy uh, they weren't good. And you know maybe they could go out and find someone who can uh, help them keep stay afloat during times like that. Um, and also just you know a matter of wanting wanting a fresh perspective, a fresh voice, and and just a change for the sake of change. I think. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I, I think it came down to. 
as, as much as it seemed like a toss-up, I think the Wizards made their mind, and that was reflected in the contract negotiations. So you mentioned Bradley Beal, and given his contract situation, to me, there does need to be an urgency this Wizards offseason, unlike in maybe any other previous Wizards offseason, in that you know this is not a run-it-back team, as Tommy Shepard has accurately said. The Wizards, I think we all would agree, like realistic best-case scenario is currently constructed or no better than, say, the four seed in the Eastern Conference, and maybe even that's being generous. So if you're going to do something of true consequence with Beal and also Russell Westbrook, who technically can opt out next summer as well, you need to do more this offseason. You need to add another major piece if you're not going to trade Beal, which it certainly doesn't look like the Wizards are going to do. Do you believe that Tommy Shepard will make a big move this offseason to add a third major piece to Beal and Westbrook? I think he'll make a big move, and I think he'll try to add a big third piece uh, next to Beal and Westbrook. But, um, you know, some stars have to align, no pun intended, for that to happen, right? You know, the, the right player has to come along uh, from the right team, and you have to have the right package to beat out other teams that are interested. So I think they're going to explore that possibility and think a little bigger than they have in the past, which I think is good. You know, I, you know, I, I know how you feel about where the Wizards are and, and how a lot of fans uh, feel, where they kind of want them to pick a lane, you know, either tear it down or, or hit the gas. And I think they're willing this summer, maybe more willing than they have been in a long time, to hit the gas. Um, you know, Tommy Shepard said flat out he's, he's willing to take big swings, and he said that he's shown that his willingness to do that. And I do think people sleep on the risk and sort of the, uh, all, the decision that he had to make trading John Wall with a first-round pick, a protected first-round pick, for Russell Westbrook. That was pretty risky and there was a lot of backlash among fans, but it showed a willingness to sort of shake things up and take a bit of a risk that I don't think we saw from the previous administration in the front office, even though Tommy Shepard was technically the number two under Ernie Grunfeld. So I would be encouraged by that if I were a Wizards fan, but um, certainly it's a lot easier said than done. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do make a big trade, but it's more for depth. It's like, all right, you, you trade what you would trade for a, st- a star, or maybe a little bit less than that. And instead of adding one guy, it's maybe two to deepen your rotation. But I do think they're going to think in those terms. And look, if they want to make a big change to their roster, it has to come via trade. I mean, you can deduce that just by looking at their salary cap or their, their free agent resources. Uh, they have the 15th overall pick. That's only going to yield you so much. Um, so I think the Wizards are sort of big game hunting this summer, and we'll see what they can accomplish because obviously it's really difficult to do. But um, you do have something here with Russell Westbrook still in his prime and Bradley Beal. And maybe if you do make a trade and bring in a third piece, maybe it becomes a lot easier to negotiate a new contract with Bradley Beal. And all of a sudden the idea of trading him before you lose him in free agency is taken off the table. You would love for that to happen, and I know you've been asked about this many times. You've written about this many times. Beal is legitimately open to staying here long-term. He just needs to be given reason to want to stay here long-term. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think Bradley Beal wants to win with the Wizards, um, and you know, he can make a lot more money if he stays, too. If, he's, if he, one year from now, opts out of his contract, he can make one of the largest contracts in NBA history. It's something like five years for 230 million, uh, something in that range. And it's like 60 million more than he can make with another team. So he's got financial incentive, but he's, he's just different than most NBA stars these days. John Wall was kind of the same. They, they want to be with the Wizards. They want their jersey up in the rafters. He wants to win a championship here. He doesn't want to leave and, and join a super team. Um, but certainly, as you see with Damian Lillard, a guy who Bradley Beal really respects, 
you can kind of see the future if you stick around with the team and they don't put the proper cast around you. So I think he wants to see them do something this summer. Um, but the good thing is, you know, the Wizards can go through their entire offseason before they reach the, negotiate, the negotiating table with Bradley Beal. And I, I think they can make things pretty easy for them if they do bring in a third star, uh, a third all-star caliber player. I think that's exactly what Bradley Beal would want to sign up for. Um, you add that, the, the ability to win here potentially uh, with the money that he can make, and it, and it might end up being a no-brainer if you compare it to the things he said in the past because he does truly like it here and he does truly want to win here. Final topic. It's very hard as a Wizards fan to watch the NBA playoffs right now. Look at the Phoenix Suns and not say to yourself, geez, if the Suns could do this, why not the Wizards? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the Suns were really bad. Suns have completely transformed themselves in part with the addition of a veteran point guard who a lot of people thought was way past his peak. And I know that Russell Westbrook is not the same kind of player as Chris Paul is, but there are some parallels there. And here you have the Suns in the ultra competitive, ultra deep Western Conference doing really well. Are there lessons that the Wizards can take from what the Suns have done? I think absolutely. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to view the Suns and look at where they were one year ago, because obviously they made some noise in the bubble. They went 8-0, but they finished the season 34-39. and And they didn't have a high draft pick. And, you know, they didn't have a history in free agency that suggested they were going to go out and, and, you know, reel in the big fish. They basically had to make a trade. And they hadn't made the playoffs since 2010 when they had Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire. So they decided to take a little bit of a risk and go out and trade for Chris Paul and pair him with DeAndre Ayton and and Devin Booker. And obviously they've got a nice young nucleus, nucleus of young players. But that one trade vaulted them into contention and it's very similar to the where the Wizards are right now if 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 you think about it the Wizards just like the Suns a year ago won 34 games in a shortened season uh they were 34 and 8 uh 34 and 38 the Suns are 34 and 39 um and they have to make a trade really if they want to take that next step so I, I think a lot of people might point to oh well Devin Booker is great and, and DeAndre Ayton you know the Suns um, bottomed out and got the number one pick. But in that Western Conference, I don't think anyone believes they would be where they are now if they didn't make that trade for Chris Paul. So I think if the Wizards want to make a similar leap, they're probably going to have to do it in a very similar way. Um, so I would look at the Suns and what they did is sort of a model. Obviously, it's not a perfect comparison, um, but they hadn't done anything in a long time and they made one trade and it made all the difference. And I think that's what the Wizards pretty much have to do this offseason if they want to make the same jump. Yeah, the Suns do offer us hope as Wizards fans. And of course, it's always nice to have hope. Well, Wizards insider Chase Hughes, NBC Sports Washington, has been doing a great job writing about the team, covering the team. He's been all over the Wizards head coaching search. Always enjoy talking Wizards with you, man. Thanks so much. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. So how about the Orioles? I mean, this is unreal. The O's who have the worst record in the American League and the worst run differential in the AL are a win away from authoring a three-game sweep at the Houston Astros, who have the second best record in the AL and the best run differential in the majors and who last week tortured the O's. The O's got swept by the Astros in three games at Oriole Park at Camden Yards from June 21st 
through June 23rd. The O's over those three games got outscored 26-3. But here we are now, and the O's are a game away from sweeping manager Dusty Baker and his Astros in Houston. Monday night, a 9-7 Orioles win. Tuesday night, a 13-3 Orioles win. And so, Joe Angel, if you would. And the Orioles again in the win column. Exactly, Joe. And the O's have won these two games despite Thomas Eshelman starting on Monday night and reliever Travis Lakins Sr. starting on Tuesday night in what was a bullpen game. This makes zero sense, and yet it be happening. The Orioles' offense has been outstanding over the first two games of this series, and the two best guys have been two young stud outfielders, two building blocks for the future. This is what the Orioles' season is about, right? The tanking season, the rebuilding season, another one. It's all about potential building blocks. I'm talking here about Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes in terms of the two guys who have delivered the most offensively for the O's over these first two games at the Astros. So Cedric Mullins is game in, game out, the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter. And he, shall we say, had himself a game on Tuesday night. This 13-3 win at the Astros. Mullins got on base five times. He had four hits in the walk. He had a leadoff homer in the top of the first. He had a one-out four-pitch walk in the top of the third. He had a two-out first pitch RBI double in the top of the seventh. He had a two-out single in the Orioles' five-run eighth. And he had a two-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the ninth. Mullins in the 9-7 win on Monday night, three singles and two stolen bases. He has been by far the Orioles' best player this season. It's not even a debate. He's been great offensively. He's been dynamic defensively. He's someone who you look at and you say to yourself, boy, this guy should be an Oriole for the next 10, 15 years easy. Cedric Mullins now on the season has a batting average of 323, has an on-base percentage of 391, and has a slugging percentage of 554. And then with Austin Hayes, Hayes is an excellent defensive corner outfielder. He can play right field. He can play left field. He has been the Orioles starting right fielder and number two batter in each of the first two games in this series. And he's been great. The 13-3 win on Tuesday night, Hayes had a two-out, two-run single in the top of the fifth and a two-out RBI single in the Orioles' five-run eighth. Hayes in the 9-7 win on Monday night, two-out single in the Orioles' one-run third, a one-out first pitch single in the Orioles' one-run seventh, and a two-run homer on a one-two pitch in the Orioles' five-run ninth inning. The thing with Hayes is the batting. Like, if he could just get that to be a little bit better, you're golden with Austin Hayes because, like I said, he is tremendous defensively. Austin Hayes' slash line on the season now, batting average of 245, on base percentage of 304, slugging percentage of 415. So he's got to get those numbers up. But if he could just get to, like, a league average level offensively, You're good to go with him because, like I said, defensively, few guys in the majors are better than Austin Hayes at those corner outfield spots. You've also had in this series so far, by the way, another big game for Ryan Mountcastle, who really has had himself a good month of June. So Mountcastle in the 9-7 win at the Astros on Monday night, starting first baseman at number four batter, had a two-out first pitch RBI single in the Orioles' one-run third, had a two-out two-run homer in the top of the fifth 
despite having been down in the count of 1.02, drew a one-out five-pitch walk in the Orioles' one-run seventh, and drew a one-out five-pitch walk in the Orioles' five-run ninth inning. Now, Mountcastle did struggle in this 13-3 win on Tuesday night. He ended up going 0-5. for with two strikeouts, left four men on base. But take a listen to Mountcastle's slash line for the month of June. Batting average of 333, on base percentage of 390, slugging percentage of 646. Excellent numbers for Ryan Mountcastle this month. So in this season, what I keep saying, it's all about the young potential building blocks. And right here, so far in this series, in Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, and Ryan Mountcastle, probably the three best, most promising young potential building blocks in terms of position players on the Major League roster are showing up and showing out. It's been great to see. Game three for the O's at the Strohs, Wednesday night at 8-10, and guess who is starting for the Orioles? Matt Harvey. It is on the shoulders of Matt Harvey that the Orioles hopes for a three-game sweep at the mighty Astros rest. Uh, Harvey will be opposing Luis Garcia. Can Matt Harvey actually do the deed and complete the sweep? I tell you what, this sweep makes so little sense that it makes actually perfect sense that Matt Harvey would be the starting pitcher to seal the sweep for the Orioles at the Astros. And let's be honest here, Harvey is coming off a halfway decent outing, at least by his standards. Harvey's most recent outing came in the Orioles' 6-5, 10-inning win over the Toronto Blue Jays in Buffalo on Friday night. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings. Now, he did give up two homers, a triple, and three singles, and he only recorded two strikeouts. So it's all relative, man. But he also only issued one walk, and he lasted for at least five full innings in a start for the first time in 10 starts. Harvey entered the game having allowed 40 earned runs in 27 and a third innings over his previous eight starts. The Harvey we saw on display in Buffalo last Friday night, reminiscent of the Harvey we saw over his first seven starts of the season. Remember, Matt Harvey over his first seven starts of this season had an ERA of 360. It wasn't always as bad as it's been over these last few months in which it's basically been tap out time. And I've said many times, I don't understand why Matt Harvey is still on the team, but he is still on the team and he didn't suck in his last start. And if he doesn't suck on Wednesday night, the Orioles can maybe actually pull this off, a three-game sweep at the Astros. Who'd have thunk it? But when you're a tanking, rebuilding team, you take something like this and you have some fun with it because the O's have had such little fun so far this year and really, truthfully, have had such little fun over these last few years. All right, before we call it a show, I did want to address the very big Maryland basketball news from Monday. And the news, not necessarily unexpected, but it is significant. Daryl Morcell is gone. Uh, He is transferring to Marquette. He is doing so as a graduate transfer. Morcell was a senior for Maryland this past season. The NCAA in October 2020 granted an extra year of eligibility to all winter sport athletes due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Morcell, all the way back on April 5th, announced that he was, one, declaring for the 2021 NBA draft while maintaining his collegiate eligibility, two, entering his name into the NCAA transfer portal, and three, leaving open the possibility of returning to Maryland. So basically everything was on the table with Daryl Morcell over these last few months. And then Morcell on Monday, so June 28th, nearly three months after April 5th, 
announced that he is transferring to Marquette as a graduate transfer. This is a blow to the Terrapins. There's no doubt about that. And I don't think Marcel leaving Maryland is done in some like mean way or that this is the result of Daryl Morcel hating Mark Turgeon or anything like that. But when you net this out, this is a loss for Maryland basketball. Daryl Morcel is a great defensive player. Daryl Morcel, in a lot of ways, was the heart and soul of Maryland this past season. Morcel on March 9th was named 2021 Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, that's an award that's voted on by the Big Ten's 14 head coaches, as yes, there are 14 teams in the Big Ten. Uh, Anyway, Marcel became the first player in Maryland men's basketball history to win a conference Defensive Player of the Year award. Now, that's a bit misleading because the ACC, for whatever reason, did not introduce a Defensive Player of the Year award until the 2013-2014 season. Why? Who knows? The ACC was behind on things for years, but still, Morcel, first player in Maryland men's basketball history to win a conference defensive player of the year award. He, this past season, had a number of big games for the Terps. I mean, I think back to the January 10th, 66-63 win at then number 12, Illinois, Morcel in the Terps' previous game, an 89-67 loss to then number five, Iowa, at Xfinity Center on January 7th returned from a one-game absence caused by a fractured bone in his face as he underwent surgery on New Year's Day. But he, while wearing a mask, committed six turnovers in 22 minutes off the bench. But Morcel in this win at Illinois, 19 points on 8 of 16 shooting, four rebounds in 36 minutes as a starter. January 23rd, a 63-49 win at then number 17, Minnesota. The Terps defense, exceptional in this game. The defense started with Daryl Morcel. In fact, Turgeon, during his virtual postgame press conference, said, quote, it starts with Daryl, end quote. February 21st, 68-59 win at Rutgers. Morcel was a warrior in this game. He was dealing with a right shoulder issue that featured the shoulder per Turgeon having to twice be popped back into place. Morcel played for 28 minutes as a starter, finished with 12 points on 5 of 8 shooting, 3 assists versus 2 turnovers, and three steals. The Terps led for the entire second half, did allow, though, Rutgers to get within six at 47-41, and then Morcel happened. He had a beautiful driving and one layup in the paint with heavy traffic and the shot clock winding down for a 49-41 lead with 6.29 left in the second half. He then had a transition dunk for a 51-41 lead with 6.04 left in the second half. Even with that shoulder, again, having to be popped back into place twice, Daryl Morcel delivered down the stretch of that game, that win at Rutgers. February 28th, 73-55, win over Michigan State at Xfinity Center. Morcel, who didn't practice in the week leading up to the game due to that right shoulder issue, 11 points on four or five shooting, three rebounds, and three assists versus one turnover in 34 minutes as the starter. Again, Daryl Morcel, a warrior. Daryl Morcel, in so many ways, the heart and soul of the Terrapins this past season. But Daryl Morcel... Now is gone. And so now we await what happens with Aaron Wiggins and Eric Ayala. Wiggins and Ayala on April 9th announced that they were declaring for the 2021 NBA draft while maintaining their collegiate eligibilities. Wiggins this past season, number two on the Terps in points per game at 14.5, number two on the Terps in steals per game at 1.1, number two on the Terps in minutes per game at 33. Ayala this past season led the Terps in points per game at 15.1, led the Terps in steals per game at 1.2, and led the Terps in minutes per game at 33.6. So two very significant players, obviously, 
Uh, their futures matter a lot in terms of Maryland basketball for next season. Now, of course, also this offseason, you've had multiple other Terps entering the NCAA transfer portal. This is the way things are now in college basketball. The Boston College transfer, Jarius Hamilton, back in the NCAA transfer portal, and his departure would hurt the Terps. Uh, number two was Hamilton this past season among qualified Terps in three-point percentage at 43, 37 of 86 on the season. The big man, 7'2 sophomore Shoal Mariel, entered the NCAA transfer portal, as did 6'3 freshman point guard Aquan Smart. The transfer portal, as you likely know, has changed college basketball. We now essentially have free agency every offseason, and so this is just how it is. And remember, the Terps have gained players via the transfer portal this offseason. The Georgetown transfer, the 6'11 Nigerian Kudus Wahab, coming to Maryland. Rhode Island transfer and point guard Fats Russell coming to Maryland. Utah transfer and shooting guard Ian Martinez coming to Maryland. A lot of moving parts for Turgeon, who of course himself isn't going anywhere. Contract extension that was announced in April. His deal goes through the 2025-2026 season. This coming season to be the Turge's 11th season as Turps head coach. Just one Sweet 16 appearance over those first 10 seasons, he has made the NCAA tournament in five of the last six seasons for which there has been an NCAA tournament, and he does deserve credit for that, but he has made just the one Sweet 16 as Terps head coach 2016. It has been a high floor, low ceiling run for the Turge as Terps head coach. I hope, like every Maryland fan, that that changes this coming season via the ceiling being raised. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. The vacay continues with the word vacay in quotation marks. Uh, Remember, just three episodes this week as opposed to the usual five. So I'll be back with you with a show on Friday. And on that show will be a special guest, Ben Rolfe the senior managing editor of Pro Football Network. He will join me to discuss him ranking the Washington football team's offensive line as the number three offensive line in the NFL. This has gotten a lot of attention. The source of the hubbub will be on the Al Galdi podcast on Friday. I'll talk to you then. Have a great rest of your Wednesday and have a nice Thursday as well. I really do appreciate the the Snyder's 